He says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. To sanctify means to set apart. We found this word several times in the epistle of 1 Thessalonians. It means purity, to be separated unto God's purposes. But realize it's God who has separated you out and distinguished you among many of the people in this earth as one of his own. But it's not only God who sanctifies you, he does it completely. When God does something, it's not a partial fix in your life. You may feel like you're partially done as far as your walk with the Lord, that you haven't arrived. And it's true, we haven't. But in God's mindset, he not only sanctifies us himself, and it is Christ who died on the cross to do that for us, but he will also see that it is completed. It literally means absolutely perfect or complete in all respects. That's not me now. I know that. I think I'm a lot better off than I used to be. I still think I'm growing up, maturing. I haven't arrived yet, but God's going to make sure it gets done. He's going to make sure it gets done in my life and in your life, too, for those of us who put faith in him. You're looking too far for that need you have inside. You're on a big merry-go-round, and it's taking you for a ride. You've got to let go and let go. Welcome to The Cleansing Word. We invite you to stay with us as Pastor John Pinnell of Calvary Chapel Lake Villa takes us through a verse-by-verse study from God's Word. Each Monday through Friday, we'll be airing messages to encourage you in your faith that you might grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope that you enjoy this broadcast, and I'll return at the close of this teaching to give you more information about our church and how you can obtain a copy of this message. Now here's Pastor John with today's message from God's Word. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Despising prophecy can be very dangerous. And this is the 17th exhortation to us. Someone can say, thus says the Lord. That's why we learn to test all things. The church of Berea, we know, was that kind of church where Paul and Silas came teaching to them. Remember that they weren't even a church at that time. They were just believers that the Messiah was coming. Paul and Silas came preaching that Jesus was the Messiah. And the scripture tells us in Acts 17, 11, that the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica and that they searched the scripture daily to see if these things were so. They were testing all things. They were testing the words of these preachers, these evangelists, to see, is this legit or not? Is this for real or not? John wrote to us in 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Jesus said to the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2, 2, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, 
and have found them liars. And so here we're not to quench the spirit of God in our life. His spirit, I believe, can, well, when prophecies go forth, we can take it and someone says, thus says the Lord, and we can just file it. Say, well, perhaps this is of the Lord. We'll have a wait and see attitude on it. Someone can say, thus says the Lord, and and maybe it has something to do with the word and we can look into the word. Well, someone could say, and they have several times at different dates throughout our lives, said that Jesus is coming on such and such a date. And we can go to the word and read Jesus, say no one knows the day or the hour. And, And so we test this person or woman, man, the word based off the word of God and said, God didn't tell you that. Oh, yes, he did. It was the spirit of God had told it to me. Well, it disagrees with the word of God. And so you test it and line it up with the word of God. And those things that do well, you hold fast to what is good. Exhortation number 19. Back in verse 15, Paul wrote to them and to us saying, pursue what is good. And pursue is what? You're chasing something down. And now here he says to hold fast on what is good. To me, it's that mindset of you caught it. You've been chasing good. Now you've caught it. Hold on to it. Don't let go of it. Hold fast, and it means to keep secure, to keep possession of. Philippians 4.8, and I'd written a chorus to this. We've sang a few times here at the church, but not recently. It says, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report. If there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Hold fast to what is good. Get our eyes focused on on the Lord and the goodness that he surrounds us with, but also abstain from every form of evil. Back in verse 15 again, he says, don't render evil for evil. But now he's saying to abstain from every form of evil. It means to hold oneself off from. You're pursuing good. You want to grab that, hang on to it. But evil, stay away. But it's not just evil, every form of evil. I think that's important for us. It's how other people view us. Last night, we were at a wedding reception, had a wedding here at the church yesterday. And uh, at the reception, there was the toast, the best man and the maid of honor would give their speeches and have everybody raise a glass. And so the champagne went around to the tables and, and realized I haven't drunk any alcoholic beverage since I was 18 years old. And I can still count the drinks that I had. The first one, someone spiked some Kool-Aid on me when I was like 11. It wasn't my fault. You know, I can remember these things, and, and on my fingers I can count them. But certain events can make you feel awkward. You know, you want to pay respect, you want to pay honor to the bride and groom. And, and at one particular wedding years ago, it just so happens when the toast was taking place, the groom's dad was standing right next to me, and I didn't toast because, again, I don't drink, but I saw that he was really upset because I didn't lift a glass. And so last night, and what we do now, Lily and I, and we have the same mindset in this, and we just take water from one glass, pour it in the other, and, and toast water. It, from everybody else, we're given a toast. And so I had done that, prepared for the toast. I knew it was coming up because I had to do the opening or the prayer for the blessing, and I'd already done that. And we were waiting for this to take place. They went to the head table, and they began to pour the champagne. And they got to the last guy, and I met him on Friday night. He seemed to be a nice guy. And Friday night, we went out for the rehearsal dinner, and he sat next to me. And we just had general conversation. But 
as they were pouring the champagne, he already had his water in his glass, and the person came to him. He was happened to be the last one at the table, and we were sitting right next to that table. And he just put his hand over it, and the guy walked away. And I leaned over to Lily and said, Billy didn't take champagne. And she goes, yeah, he was watching you when you poured your water into your glass, and he did the same. Now, I didn't know that. Lily saw all that. Abstain from any form of evil. I think for me, as your pastor, this is something... I can't do. A few weeks ago, we're at a restaurant that was really crowded, and they came over and said, you guys can wait at the bar if you want to. And it's like, no, we'll just stand right here. I just don't think this image of your pastor hanging out at the bar is just what you want. And so I stay away from those forms of evil now. It's, it wouldn't, I could go sit at a bar and drink a Coke. It's not a sin. But now, and it was just, I think, so well illustrated last night, people are watching. And so we're to test all things, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now he begins the blessings. He's not done with the exhortations yet, but he begins the blessings, verse 23. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, may the God of peace himself. This is God's deal now, and it is God's deal. He says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. To sanctify means to set apart. We found this word several times in the epistle of 1 Thessalonians. It means purity, to be separated unto God's purposes. But realize it's God who has separated you out and distinguished you among many of the people in this earth as one of his own. But it's not only God who sanctifies you, he does it completely. When God does something, it's not a partial fix in your life. You may feel like you're partially done as far as your walk with the Lord, that you haven't arrived. And it's true, we haven't. But in God's mindset, he not only sanctifies us himself, and it is Christ who died on the cross to do that for us, but he will also see that it is completed. It literally means absolutely perfect or complete in all respects. That's not me now. I know that. I think I'm a lot better off than I used to be. I still think I'm growing up and maturing. I haven't arrived yet, but God's going to make sure it gets done. He's going to make sure it gets done in my life and in your life too, for those of us who put faith in him. But it's not just in this life. Paul says, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless. Whole spirit, soul, and body. It's the only time that these Three words are grouped together like this in all of Scripture. And so often, the spirit and soul are kind of uh, words that we inter-exchange for every once in a while. They, we don't see the separation in them so often. But here, Paul distinctly says spirit, soul, and body. He's not talking about God's spirit. He's talking about our spirit, our soul, our body. I believe we've been created in the image of God, just like Scripture says. In Genesis 1:26, where God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And I believe it speaks of the triunity of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Not that we look like God, because Jesus tells us that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so although the Bible used descriptive terms to describe God as having a righteous arm, as I think we read on Wednesday night, 
his arm of righteousness or having hands, eyes and ears and such as having a physical body. The Lord Jesus himself said, God is spirit. He has no distinct form. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And so the image of God that we've been created in is a lesser triunity, I believe, of this spirit, soul and body. It's by the spirit that we're able to worship the Lord. It's John 4, 24, where the Lord said, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And so to have communion with the Lord, our spirits need to be regenerated that we can have communion with the Lord. It's our soul in scripture that speaks about that which makes us alive. When in Genesis, again, Genesis 2, 7, when God breathed into man the breath of life and he became a living being, that phrase living being in Hebrew also is a word that is used for soul. His soul, it makes distinction. Now in the Hebrew, an animal can become a living being. And the difference between us and the animal world then is the spirit that God has put in us. But that living fire that gives us life in these bodies, our soul, and then the physical body itself, spirit, soul, and body. This tent that Paul describes it as in scripture, this earthly house, when it's destroyed, we have a building from God, not made with hands, but eternal in the heavens. And so it is the Lord who sanctifies us completely that our whole spirit, soul, and body, not just parts, but the whole thing, be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. To establish our hearts blameless in 1 Thessalonians 3.13, he said, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. That it's God who does this, it's not us. Now, we are being exhorted to do many good things here. But ultimately realize the work of God in your life is God's work. And as he begins the work in us and we recognize God, we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And he begins to grow us in our faith. We mature in Christ as we should. We discipline our body, as Paul says, to better our life, to be that example, to be able to do these things we've been reading about, to rejoice and to pray without ceasing, to give thanks the way we should to not quench the spirit, to not despise prophecies, to test the things of the Lord or of man, to abstain from every form of evil. But ultimately, the work of salvation is God's work. He's the one who sanctifies. He's the one who makes us complete. And he's the one who will have us standing before him blameless, not because of what we have done, but because of everything that he has done. It is all about Jesus. It's his work in our lives. And this is a blessing to us. Blessing number one, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Blessing number two, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessing number three, verse 24, he who calls you is faithful and will also do it. Hey, God's faithful. He's going to do it. We have a faithful God. And so often I think we forget this. But he who calls you is faithful. In 1 Corinthians 1.9, Paul writes to us and says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. Remember, we're caught in the midst of the circumstances of life so often. And we may question the faithfulness of God. And Paul's encouraging us not to do that. Our Lord is faithful. 
and he will also do it. He's got to do it, man. At the end, as Job said, when this flesh is destroyed with my eyes, I will see him. At the end, it'll all make sense. In verse 25, he drops back to an exhortation. It's exhortation number 21. He says, brethren, pray for us. Actually, it's a request. It's a good request. I would ask that you guys would pray for me, and you guys quite often ask Lily and I to be praying for you, and we do. Sometimes it's even better if we know what we're praying about and we can agree with you in prayer. And so at times it may be a general prayer that we're praying over you. This week was an interesting week in so many ways. And, you know, we are a small fellowship. I said that last week. It's true. Look around and we can count and know everybody's name and face. And, and we're not strangers here. And, and last Sunday I was impressed by the Lord that we should fast and pray this week. I just challenge you and ask you that if the Lord lays it upon your heart to join us in fasting, and and I'd spent Monday and Thursday in, in time of fasting and prayer, the days of our prayer time that we meet together as a church, and we just experience a time in this fellowship that we haven't experienced, I think, maybe in seven or six years, where there's just a lot of stuff going on in seemingly almost everybody's life. There's just a lot of things going on. More stuff took place this week. And so to pray for us, Paul, in his epistle, has already told them that we've been praying for you. Now he asks, pray for us. And as your pastor and Lily, as my bride, we pray for you guys. I've just asked that you would pray for us. Pray for us that God's will would be worked out in our lives too as we share before you here and minister here in this fellowship. Pray for Kevin and Melissa. Pray for those that in the fellowship, those who are in place of teaching or in worship, and those you see that are serving, just ask the Lord to bless and be a church that prays for one another. Exhortation number 22, verse 26, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I have a problem with this sometimes, and well, I got to the point where I could kiss my dad. It took me a while. I was probably 25 or 26 before I could get enough manhood in me that it realized that it wasn't bad to do that with your dad. Give him a kiss on the cheek to say that I love him, and I'm glad we got to that place because, you know, the day and age that my dad was raised in, there wasn't that kind of love showed too often from the dads to their sons. And, and we don't, you know, I don't think I've kissed any of you guys here with a holy kiss. I don't remember doing this. It's not in my knowledge, but we hug each other. And so for today, it'd probably be better read that way for us. It was their culture that that's how they greeted. Like when you're in Italy, that's a European greeting quite often is by a kiss. Um, sometimes it's very fake and the kiss is off in the air, but it's cheek to cheek. But for us, it'd be a holy hug. And if you need to know how to do that, just look at Barb and watch her as she walks in because she is the professional holy hugger here in this fellowship. I would also caution you. A friend of mine, his wife told him at one point in another fellowship in Wisconsin, she said, you know, when such and such hugs me, he hugs me differently than other people. He was getting sensual in the hug, and she knew it, and she realized it. And so he had to talk to this man. When I was in my mid-20s, under a youth pastor at a church in this county, the youth pastor kissed Lily on the lips, and I immediately reprimanded him and said, listen, buddy, I'm not kissing on your wife. You don't kiss on mine. 
But later on, he fell in the area of sexual sin. And so we need to be cautious. It needs to be holy, not sensual, but holy, just as Paul put it there. Exhortation, the final one, number 23. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren, to all the church we could say. But here we see that Paul saying, hey, share the word that I'm giving to you, this letter. Let it be read by others. Don't just keep it to yourself. In Colossians 4.16, Paul said to them, now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans. And you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Now, we don't have that epistle today, but Paul says, hey, swap letters. When you guys got it researched and you've read it, swap with the church in Laodicea and read what I wrote to them. And so we know by this that it is not Paul's, as we know, it's the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that this is God's word and it's to be read. Sadly, in many of our churches today, God's word is is not held in the honor that it once has held for so many years. In many churches today, it seems to be somewhat an inconvenience for the church members to carry their Bibles to church. And in many of the churches, I understand why, because their pastor reads from so many different translations during his message. I was in a church in California where this was taking place, not at Calvary Chapel, but a very famous church in California. And I counted... I believe in that one message, some 17 different translations of Scripture. The reason I knew that is because they were putting the Scripture up on the screen and and they would let you know what it was coming from. And so the first thing I realized as we were approaching or coming into the church was I said to my two brothers who are of Calvary Chapels, I said, hey, guys, look around. Nobody's carrying their Bibles. And then once we got into the message, I realized, well, why bother? Because you can't keep up with it. You know, when you're reading from so many different varied translations, you really can't keep up with it anyways. And so this week I got a phone call. Someone was checking out our church. They have some questions. Are you the guy to ask? And I said, well, I am the pastor. You're probably talking to the right guy. And he's going through his list, thinking, just come and check us out. But anyways, he's going through his list, and he says, and I'm writing them down. If you guys call me, I take notes. So... You know, I'm writing them down. I have the guy's name. I can pray. And if he's not here today, so I can freely talk about this. But at one point he says, and you're an NIV church. I go, well, no. I have personal reasons that I don't use the NIV. But I have backed off on slamming people who do. I used to. In fact, it was through the NIV that the Lord called me to preach. And so it's not that God can't use it, but I do have some reasons. And if you want to ask me privately, I'll share them with you why I don't. But I said, no, I teach from the New King James. Go, oh, that's all right. That's, that's cool. But I went on to say is I don't switch Bibles around. Everybody knows what I use. And if you guys choose to get a New King James, many of you have. And I know, see, the decision that I have made is affecting many of you and how you study Scripture. But it's the reading of the Word of God. We're keeping God's word in our heart that we're sharing the word of God. And many churches are neglecting the word. They're going more to the world, going more to psychology instead of the preaching of the word of God. And I believe it's a grave mistake. And then finally, he says in verse 28, the final blessing, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Grace, God's unmerited favor toward us. Some had said, I believe it's this way, an acronym of God's grace, grace received at Christ's 
expense. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. What more can you add to a close? And Father, we pray that your grace would be upon us. Thank you for your word. May it continue to penetrate our hearts. May we take, Lord, these exhortations that we've received today, and may we be a people, Lord, that learns to rejoice always. May we be a people, Lord, that knows how to pray without ceasing, to give thanks in everything. Be a people, Lord, that don't quench your spirit and a people that doesn't despise prophecies. But we know how to hold on to that which is good, to test these things, to abstain from evil. Lord, we thank you that it is you who sanctifies us wholly, our whole spirit, soul, and body, and that we will one day stand blameless before you because of everything that you have done for us. And that, Lord, you will see it through, that you are faithful, Lord. Thank you for these lovely words. May we be a church that prays for one another, that knows how to give a holy hug to our brothers and sisters, that we'd be a church, Lord, that loves your word so much that we take it and read it and want to share it with others, knowing, Lord, that it's by your grace that we even stand here this day. And in these things, Lord, we give thanks and give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Calvary Chapel is a fellowship of believers in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our greatest desire is to know Christ and to be conformed into His image by the power of His Holy Spirit. If you would like more information about Calvary Chapel, or if you would like a copy of today's message, please contact us at 847-265-0646. That's 847-265-0646. Thank you so much for joining us today. And may the Lord richly bless you as you worship him today.